0: So welcome to Sheep Stuff You Should Know with Dan Macon up here in Auburn. And who are you?
1: Ryan Mahoney down here in Rhea Vista.
0: Outstanding. And this is the third taping, but the second episode, I think, right? Yes. Very good. Very good. I'm not sure that anybody should have to to listen to this much Sheep Stuff, but I think it's been good.
1: It's been fun for me.
0: It has been very fun for me, and I, I, you obviously had done your homework last week, so you set a very high bar, and, and I've had to think about questions that I wanted to ask you this week. So uh, if you're okay with it, I'll just start off. I, I think I've got one that, that'll generate some conversation here.
1: Yeah, let's go ahead and give it a go.
0: So, you know, I think it was obvious from last week that both of us treat our sheep operations as businesses, um, but we're operating at vastly different scales, and um, I'm just curious about um, whether you use any particular benchmarks or or analysis tools that allow you to evaluate the success of your business, whether it's in the the production realm or the, the financial economic realm, but what are the things that you look at from a business perspective?
1: yeah so yes we definitely very much run this as a business this is my full-time job and it provides the sole income or the my wife's also a teacher um, but she just went back to teaching this last year so up until she went back this was a sole income for our family so we don't do anything outside of the ranch so it is very much a business and we take that approach i think just to say right off the top i think one of the common misconceptions by a lot of people about agribusiness or agriculture in general, that if you're doing it for a profit, you don't care about what you're doing. And that could be not further from the truth because it took me about one month on the job to realize that the well-being and welfare of your animals is directly related to your financial success. And so if you don't show up, you don't Take out the extra time and take care of the water issues, manage the feed. You don't put in the extra effort and don't work and put the priority of that animal first. You fail from a business perspective more often than not. I think my favorite analogy is that a lot of people bought chickens and have them in their backyard now and use them for (laughs) eggs. And the first thing chickens do when they're stressed is they stop laying eggs. So if anybody who makes the argument that a chicken, the egg laying chicken is completely stressed out and miserable in their conditions, but yet their, the whole business model is based on that egg lay, that chicken ain't laying an egg. The only way that can happen is that it is not stressed and it is healthy. And so I think it's really important that we constantly as operators, we're constantly putting that, First, when we're making our management decisions, because uh, more often than not, the well-being of that animal, the welfare of the animal, does uh, relate directly back to your um, production efficiencies, which is our main ben- our main benchmark that we use when we're measuring our um, ourselves as a company. Production efficiencies you can measure those in a lot of different ways. We we do a we do a couple of different things. We really look at maximizing our production per acre is one of the first things that we look at so we don't look at the number of calves born we don't look at the number of lambs born Uh, we do but in this measurement you look at you have x amount of acres it's all under fence Um, we pay a flat overhead fee to maintain that pasture on that deal and so the most pounds produced per acre is your best efficiency number that you can reach for. So we look at, um, you take your stocking densities for cattle and sheep, and you take your meat sales, wool sales, and and um, add them all together, and divide it by the um, animal unit to come up with your acreage. There's a couple of other things that we do. One of the deals that I like putting together is, uh, we look at our lambing efficiencies, mm-hmm. and I can actually do a screen share, and show you one of our one of our grids that we use to kind of measure this. Uh, This is one of the charts that we use when we look at our production efficiency from a from a lambing barn perspective. So we look at our total lambs per current use. So this is after exposed and they've lambed out kind of what's lambed and what hasn't. That's the lambing percentage based on that. And then we have our Um, lambing percentage taking any dries out. So that gives you your current point-of-date lambing percentage. Then we look at our cost of labor per lamb. So we have uh, fixed labor units per different ranch and so you can see at this Mayhood ranch we had 181 lambs per employee. The Goosehaven ranch we had 323 lambs per employee that were working during that lambing time. And so you can see your efficiency costs are completely different. Your you know you're almost double in cost at this place versus this place because it's all tied to the management of the the number of sheep there and the labor and things you put in we then when we go to alfalfa we look at kind of our moving so as they move on to alfalfa we have ratios this was our most recent lambing so those numbers don't apply because they all stayed in the hills then we look at our total death loss and our post-birth death loss; those two are different numbers. The first number is all dead lambs, so that includes all stillborns, everything. Um, this post-birth is lambs after 24 hours. So if they make it the first 24 hours, then they um, are going to this category. If they die 24 hours or sooner than they are down here, then we look at the total number of heavy use per per jug. That's a small corral that we put in. Okay. So we'll put them, we look at that number to try to keep that ratio balanced as far as how many sheep were running through the system. Um, average number of lambs per day, uh, real lambing percentage doesn't really count. Well, that it counts down here on this. It doesn't count on a per bar, but that is total number of lambs born per ewes exposed to a ram. So okay. that's going back five months and looking at that number of ewes you started with. And that, so that gives you all the lambing percentages that you have. And then this is our alfalfa pounds that we've fed per ewe. So, one fun thing to look at is so you go up here and you say, gosh, we put um, twice as much labor into these Goosehaven ewes than these Mayhood ewes. But then you go down here and you put um, three times the amount of alfalfa feed into them versus here. So, when you actually back off cost and cost out and what it actually looks like, um, you got to factor all those costs in. So, I feel that it's always important to look at a variety of numbers. Uh, never just one, uh, but we do that. And if you want to go back, you can look at some of the other. This was our last fall 2019 October lambing. This would be 2018 lambing. Okay. you can see some of those numbers and how they change or move around or things. I didn't have a death loss in here yet, so that's why it's zero. It's not like we had zero. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, that that shows you kind of difference. And then we track back year over year. So then this is the previous. uh, This would be 17 and this would be um, 16. So okay. anyway um, that's kind of one of the numbers that we looked at. So that that's one measurement on the sheep side that we look at but really it's about measuring the maximum production you can get over a fixed overhead.
0: And we do we do something similar on a much smaller scale obviously but we we track our variable costs and then our overhead costs as well. So we we do something very similar in terms of trying to trying to look at what our our gross margin is, which would be our our total production minus our variable costs. So things like uh, feed costs or vet costs that go up and down by the number of sheep that we're running. We also look at some of those lambing numbers like you do. I think I'll I'll adjust that a bit um, because I think I like the level of detail that you're looking at in terms of labor. You know we're a very different setup in terms of of our lamb management and we pasture lamb we don't have any barn to bring sheep into and so we really focus on on maternal maternal characteristics in our ewes and one of the things i realized this year that i want to attract a little more carefully going forward is that the ewes that give birth on their own and can count at least to two cost us a lot less than the ewes that need our help or that can't figure out that they have two lambs. And I think if we just look at the time involved in a good maternal ewe versus one that's clueless, our own labor would really be starkly different in in that regard. So I think adding the labor in like you've done is is a really important benchmark for us to think about too. Are there some other benchmarks that you look at in terms of forage harvested or productivity of particular ranches?
1: Not yet, we're in the process of developing that. All these things take a lot of man hours and times and labor has been an increasing pressure on agriculture production. Sheep and you see it in most of the traditional commodities, sheep, beef, corn, wheat, all those kind of deals because those prices aren't set in California. They're set in Nebraska, you know, for cattle or Iowa for corn or Colorado for sheep. So you're not able to really price in the labor increases that are put on you by the regulatory pressures of the state you you work in. And so like in California, we're looking at a 30 to 40 percent higher production labor costs than almost every other state in the nation. The next closest state in the nation. There There are states that are half of what California is. And so in those states, you know, when you have a farmer negotiating a cash trade um, that commands enough volume to influence the market, um, that price is gonna get set there based on their margins, not on California margins. And uh, might get some kickback from some of the other commodity groups, but like almonds or wine grapes, you can make an argument that those are a little more, they have labor cost issues, Mm-hmm. But they're able to put more industry production value pressure on the buyers to price in some of those increases. Rice is a good example, too, where I think it's 95% of the sushi rice in the United States is grown in the northern Sacramento, north of Sacramento. So those farmers, they have those increased costs, which squeeze their bottom lines. But they, they as a conglomerate, are able to kind of price that in because everybody's in the same boat. You look at beef cattle; you got you know five, ten percent of the cattle in California, and you got forty percent sitting in Nebraska. Well, those Nebraska boys are going to set the price, and they're not going to push as hard as you know this little percentage sitting out in California. And I think sheep kind of are in the same boat with the amount of sheep that go through Colorado and the Midwest system. But um, but sheep is kind of a unique market in its own right and so it's not quite as bad as say corn or wheat or some of those real traditional commodities.
0: Well that actually kind of brings me to another question that I was was thinking about this last week. You know we talked a lot last week about the diversity of breeds and of products and of production systems in our industry and you touched on it just now. Is diversity in the sheep industry a weakness or a strength? and are there other industries that we might be able to learn from in terms of that diversity
1: yeah that's that's one of my favorite topics <laughs> i appreciate you bringing that up i think we do a really good job criticizing ourselves and our neighbors in the industry and not realizing the strength we have in the diversity that exists we're able to sell into so many different markets you look at a you look at market research and uh, modern market research say the last 10 20 years and the number one theme that always comes back is diversity of markets you have this huge buying um group in the millennials i i'm i'm i was born in 84 so i'm a millennial just barely but um they like they like diversity of choices they like diversity of products you have a huge you know you obviously have your um non-meat channel so you have your vegans you have your plant-based proteins you have all these things but these companies and groups are able to carve out their their marketing niches because there's such a diversity of demand because you'll see that growing and then just down the street in san francisco you'll see this niche butcher shop open up selling prime you know traditional usda prime beef and wagyu and lamb and all of these proteins all right there and down the street it's this vegan shop and the guy, consumers walking down the street, there are different people going into different shops, but you have solid markets for both of them. So I think it's really important to kind of embrace that diversity because the diversity comes from the diverse environment that we have. Right. And you're not gonna change the environment. In, in the large scale commercial uh, market, there's certainly some issues with inconsistency of carcass sizes and things like that. But that's more from a, a Production efficiency standpoint, I think when you're looking at a processor having to run their chains and their everything's kind of set and automated as far as you know, they got guys doing the work, but it's automated as far as you know these roughly this weight range of animals going to be coming through and getting work and broken down and put into these size boxes. Well, if you have a big variety in size of lamb chop going into these boxes. You end up with ten too small and ten too big, and nothing just right. Where and so there's some issues there, but um, with a lot of the modern technology, especially the stuff implemented in the that newest plant in Dixon, is um, you know, that really is not too big of a hurdle. I don't think by implementing some of those technologies, they're actually able to sort their cooler a lot better and use that cooler variety to. Supply the different markets. And you talk to any large scale processor and they got orders for all sorts of different types of products. So it's, it's right. not a, they, they demand an ununiform product, which is one of the reasons we have an ununiform product. And it's not because they want a variety of bad lamb and good lamb, it's they want a lot of good lamb that can service as many types of markets as possible. So I think diversity is a great thing. I think it's a, something we need to embrace and that's why i think when we talked in our last episode about how important it is that you look at the production limitations of your ranch before making your genetic decisions on where what your lambs going to be because you need to be as efficient as you can with what god has given you not worry so much about you know making sure that you're just going to raise for this one perfect market you got to be realistic with it and and um, you know you might not get the most dollars per pound, but if you get the most pounds per acre, you beat right. everybody around you.
0: Right, right. There, one of my my favorite Wendell Berry essays is a, an essay, probably, 15 20 years old now that he wrote called "Let the Farm Judge," and it's largely about sheep. But but one of his points is the piece of ground where you are farming or ranching has to have a say in what your livestock will be. I think part of our challenge is figuring out because we've got such a diversity of environments and and forage bases and landscapes, even just between Rio Vista and Auburn, we're going to have diversity in our product and that that can be a strength for us. I think part of it, one of the things we realized when we were direct marketing meat was that restaurants, because we were a relatively small number of lambs. Restaurants that wanted to do portion control and have the same size lamb chop on every plate that they served, couldn't use our lamb chops because they'd get the tail of the loin or they'd get the center of the loin and things would be different. But they could take shoulders and they could take legs and sirloins and they'd control the portion size that way. And that added value to something that for us at the farmer's market maybe it was lower value per pound, but it was a good way to get our lamb out through a different sector of the of the market. It was it was really eye opening to talk to some of the chefs that we worked with to figure out what worked best for them.
1: Yeah, I think you really touched on one of the important things when we look at the lamb market. We oftentimes you go into the grocery store and you pick up the rack and you look at the price and you say, What the heck? How am I? They're selling this for twenty dollars a pound and paying me one. Yeah. But that it's really important to understand the industry's production chain and the, the reason that we built this production chain from ewe lamb producer to backgrounder to feedlot to processor to retail sales. There, and There's a whole process along there and there's a reason for it all to understand how an animal will flow through it and different animals can skip stages depending on what they are, but to understand that each of those segments of the industry has a proper function and a very critical function to a successful industry, Um, and your point about realizing the value of these other cuts is a big part of this understanding of the production chain. One of the biggest factors in profitability or loss of money in um, a packing house is gonna be your off hauls yeah. and your skins. Like, that's a that's a really big one. Lamb skins, so lamb skins are used in airline seats, they're used in Ugg boots, they're used all, all sorts of different things. A really high quality leather, the thick, the, the good number ones. And at one point those were up over $25 each is what they were worth when Ugg boots were incredibly popular, 25 bucks a, a head. For one of those those um, those skins. Well, now today, almost all of the skins are going into the landfill, right. and so they're actually worth uh, they're worth negative three to negative five dollars, depending on what your deal is and how it looks to you. But those really high end stuff, they're not worth anything anymore. Yeah. And so when you look at a, you know, when we when we buy lambs and sell lambs. We try to factor in a 5 to $10 head margin is what we want per head. We try to get that number. If we can get $5 out of that lamb, that's worth it doing the, the, the process. That's like a 3 to 5% return ROI. So it's real thin, but ag, it's ag and ag returns are tight. And you have to keep them tight because it's competitive, right? So if you're looking at a 5 to $10 profitability on going out and buying a feeder lamb and reselling it as a fat, and you take your skin, and this is just one segment. You got There's all these other parts of this too. But you take that one segment, and it can be worth twenty-five dollars one year, and it can be worth negative three the following year. Well, that just <laughs> that's terrible. It your margin. Yeah, it, it, it destroys your margin. Yeah, very quickly. And um, so you and you go down the list. You go down um, casings, and you go down. Right. Um, a lot of these all products are exported or sold into these niche type in, in.